there are four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, each of these Gospels has its own individual style and emphasis. And each of these Gospels remarkably complements the others. And it's when we come to the birth of Jesus that we can especially pick out where each writer is coming from. For example, uh, take a look at Matthew's Gospel. Now, Matthew is primarily writing to a Jewish audience. And so he emphasizes how the birth of Jesus fulfilled all the promises, all the pictures, all the prophecies that had been made many years previously that are recorded for us in the Old Testament. And that's why Matthew begins with Jesus' family tree. And he shows that he is a direct descendant of David and of Abraham. And you'll then notice how Matthew points out all the places where prophecy is fulfilled. This is one of his emphases. He wants his Jewish readers in particular to see the continuity, to see the amazing fulfillment that Jesus brought. For example, in his opening chapter, Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23, it says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, back in the Old Testament, about 700 years before. And Matthew is going, look, he fulfills this. Or in Matthew 2, as he continues with his birth story of Jesus, in verses 14 to 15, we read this. So he, that is Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's from Hosea chapter 1. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and Matthew's going, do you see? Do you see? And then in a couple of verses later, when they're speaking about what Herod did to the babies in Bethlehem, uh, he, Matthew records this, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That was from Jeremiah 31, verse 5. That is Matthew's emphasis. You see that throughout the gospel. You see it especially in the birth of Jesus Christ. But when you turn to the second gospel that we have in our New Testament, Mark's gospel, if you look there, if you went to chapter 1, you wouldn't find any account of Christ's birth given there. And the reason is that Mark's account centers on Jesus as the king, the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And therefore, Mark gets straight into the action at the start of Christ's earthly ministry. The third gospel is Luke's. Now, Luke is the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament. 
And therefore, when you look at the emphasis he brings, it's not surprising. His emphasis is on how God has made it possible to save people from every nation, every nationality. God is able to forgive even their sins. For example, in the story of Christ's birth, he records the details of outsiders. For example, there's Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were a barren couple. That put them on the margins of society. But he records how they had a baby, John the Baptist. He records about the shepherds. Shepherds were outcasts in their day. But Luke deliberately says, look, even the outcasts, the shepherds, heard the good news. And then when Jesus is taken to the temple area by his parents, as was the custom, he records about an old man and a widow who are there at the temple and meet Jesus and recognize him for who he is. And so you find, for example, this emphasis in the words uh, recorded there in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, all the people. This is Luke's lovely emphasis. Or a little bit later in that chapter, in verses 30 to 32, we read this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is Luke's emphasis. He wants to see us to see that everyone is embraced in God's glorious salvation story. But now turn to John's account that was read earlier. Where can you find the birth of Jesus described here? I don't know if you were looking for that as uh, you were reading through it. Well, have a scan through that opening chapter for the nativity account in John's gospel. It's not easy to find because it's only in four words. And those four words are there in verse 14. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And the reason John does this, the reason John records it in this way, is because he assumes that his readers are aware of the historical events. Because they had been recorded in the three Gospels that had already been circulated at the time that John came to write and John's purpose now, he wants to help us interpret. He wants us to more fully understand what those facts actually mean. So in the space of four short words, he communicates the real wonder, the real meaning of Christmas. Now, just as Christmas brings many families together, although sadly for some of us, the regulations this year uh, make that impossible. So in John's Christmas account, he brings together some of the most glorious, some of the most vital truths that we could ever grasp. And I want us to notice this in three particular ways. The first is this. John's Christmas account brings together different persons in the Godhead. John's Christmas account brings together different persons in the Godhead. See, our verse tells us the Word became 
flesh. But what does that mean? Who's the word being referred to here? Well, John makes clear in verse 17 that he's talking about Jesus Christ. Now, that probably doesn't surprise you. You, you, you saw that one coming, didn't you? But what may startle you is the way the word is described in the first three verses of this opening chapter. Let me read to you John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word is Jesus. So we can read those verses like this. Let's put it in this way. In the beginning was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus Christ, all things were made. Without Jesus Christ, nothing was made that has been made. Now, this is, this is big. This is mind-blowing. And yet, it's absolutely essential to grasp if we want to understand what Christmas is all about. And what Jesus came to do. See, John's telling us that Jesus, that baby born to a virgin peasant woman in Bethlehem, now sleeping in a cattle feeding trough, he is telling us that that Jesus is eternally God. He has no beginning. He himself is the creator of all things. And more than that, he eternally exists with God the Father. They are both God. They are both distinct. And God is one. Now, do you get that? Have you grasped that? Can you comprehend all that John is saying about Jesus? Well, class A, congratulations if you can, because I can't. I can't get my head around it. It's too big. It's too vast. It's too much outside the way that I think. I'm finite. I'm limited. I can't grasp the idea of anyone having no beginning. I can't fully comprehend the idea of the Trinity. The three in one. The one in three. I just feel so little when we come to these awesome truths that are revealed in God's word. Look, I'm, I'm happy to debate metaphysics. I'm happy to debate philosophical schemes with anyone. But the bottom line is my brain hurts when I try to comprehend the infinite nature of an infinite God. That's why John's account of the nativity is so encouraging. The Word, the Word became flesh. He became someone that people could look at and talk to and observe and hear. Which leads me to my second point. John's Christmas account brings together different natures in the Saviour. John's Christmas account brings together different natures in the Savior. You see, the Word became 
flesh. But how can the infinite God become a real man? Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, And it's this, I think, that's confused so many people who lived in Jesus' time. If God became a man, what would you expect to see? Probably you'd expect something stunning, you know, lightning bolts coming out of his fingers. Maybe an amazing glow of light around his head. Maybe everywhere he went there would be a constant backing group of angels with wings. Maybe you'd imagine someone who never got tired or hungry or lonely. Someone who never felt pain. Someone who never wept tears. So you can imagine the amazement of some at the time who looked at Jesus and saw someone just like us. And they therefore couldn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. And that actually may be your experience. Maybe you want divine fireworks to convince you as you listen in. You're sort of going, well, if Jesus was really God, I want to see God. I I want to understand it better. I want the divine fireworks. And, And all you get instead is this Amazing man who spoke amazing words, who performed amazing miracles, who lived a spotless life, who died on a cross and rose from the dead, and somehow for you, that's not enough. You want more. Some of the older ones amongst us may remember, 25 years ago, there was a a song that was very popular at the time by a, a, a woman called Joan Osborne. It was the song, What If God Was One of Us? It was a clever song. It had a great melody. And it provoked interest by tapping into questions that we've all thought at one time or another. See, in that song, she begins by singing that God is great. Yeah, God is good. But then she moves beyond the abstract to ask the flesh and bones question. What if God was one of us? She goes on to say, just a slob like one of us. Now, I I don't like the word slob as we understand it, but I get what she's asking in her American way. Just, Just an ordinary person like us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And then she asks, now if you're old enough, you'll hear the song already uh, rolling around in your head. And then she asks, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? You see, there's the rub, there's the issue. It's not so much that folk get hung up about the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's the implications of that truth. You see, it's a blow to our sense of control and autonomy. It opens a window onto truths that are so uncomfortable for self-sufficient people like us to wrestle with. For the clear teaching of the Bible is this. Jesus was both fully God and fully man at one and the same time. And these two natures perfectly combined in the one person in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. 
Now, there's so much more that could be said on this particular theme, but I want us to spend most of the time considering our third point. It's this. John's Christmas account brings together different attributes in the Son. John's Christmas account brings together different attributes in the Son. We read this in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's God really like? How am I to understand all the words and all the concepts that we find in the Bible? How am I to make sense of them? How am I to see how they relate to, to me, ordinary me? Well, John tells us the Word became flesh. Jesus perfectly embodied who God really is. And not as we, in our limited ways, imagine he should be. You see, because there are some people who imagine that God is distant and far away. Some people who imagine that he's impersonal or cruel. Some who imagine that he's a killjoy or that he can be conned or that he can be bribed by the things that we do. But that's not what Jesus reveals. Rather, we are told he's full of grace and truth. And I'm so grateful that these two characteristics are held together. It's grace and truth. Not grace or truth. Not truth or grace. But both held perfectly together. Grace and truth in Jesus, the revelation of God. You see, it seems we live in a world that tries to get truth without grace. And there's many a church that seems to offer grace without truth. You'll be aware a new word has seeped into our consciousness over these last four years. The expression fake news. Fake news. And if anyone suggests anything that might challenge or upset me, I now instinctively reject it, and I reject them. That's fake news. It doesn't concur with what I understand, with what I believe. You see, I don't want anyone to shine a light into my darkness. If someone shines a light into my darkness, I'm going to say that's making my eyes sore. Don't do that. I disagree with you. Maybe you've been stunned reading some of the social media exchanges about COVID. I don't know if you go online, if you tweet or you see stuff on Facebook, but I've just been stunned by reading what some folks have written as they argue about COVID and mask wearing and lockdown regulations, and everyone seems to have an opinion that they are convinced is rooted in truth because their friend's friend said so. Or they read an article in some obscure online magazine. And now they will not tolerate anyone who holds a differing opinion. And they will brand them with the cruelest descriptions and some of the words and expressions that you find on social media between people who disagree. It is dreadful. And sadly, Christians are not immune to such behavior. 
You see, it's an attempt at truth, but it is utterly devoid of grace. And on the other hand, where the prevailing culture has swamped a church, Bible truth is ignored and a cheap grace is extended to everyone. Everything is affirmed. Nothing is challenged. And it's only those who would suggest otherwise who are vilified and rejected. That is the worst thing, to suggest that they may be wrong. You see, it's not Bible truth that these churches look to, but what's considered most acceptable to society at the time. It's an attempt at grace, but it's utterly devoid of truth. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. He welcomed sinners and tax collectors. He had compassion on hungry crowds. He welcomed little children. He healed the lepers and the lame and the blind, but he condemned those religious leaders who were power-hungry hypocrites. He spoke of sin. He spoke of judgment. But he invited all the broken and the hurting to come to him. My friends, we need truth. And we need grace. We need a saviour who doesn't mollycoddle sinners, who doesn't gloss over our failures and pretend that they're actually not there. We need a saviour who exposes and uncovers our sin and our rebellion, who shines like a bright light into the dark recesses of our selfish hearts, who reveals our need, who reveals our corruption. And we need a saviour who, having done all that, goes chasing after us failures and points to his finished work on Calvary's cross and invites us there to find the forgiveness of our sin and the covering of our shame and our adoption into his family. A saviour whose very nature is to lavish grace upon all who will receive him. My friends, that's the wonderful news of Christmas. That's the baby who was born. That's the baby that we celebrate. The word became flesh, full of grace and truth. And it is my longing, it's my prayer that you would know something about this, even over this holiday season. You may be listening to us and uh, you may be saying, well, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm a failure, no one's ever told me that before. Yes, you are, that's what the Bible says, and that's what Jesus says, and Jesus spoke more than any other person about the judgment of God. He spoke about hell, he spoke about God's eternal wrath. That is the truth. We are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and yet, he is not only full of truth, he is full of grace. He did he came to do something about it. He came to die on Calvary's cross. And he invites anyone, everyone, as Luke emphasizes, to come to him. To receive him. To find in him new life. Oh, how I long, how I pray that this Christmas you would repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus alone. There is no other hope for us. 
No other one who speaks truth into our lives. No other one who shows grace in that remarkable way. And could I just say in passing as I close, to those of you here listening to this who are Christians, who are born again, brothers and sisters, just as the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us the character of God, full of grace and truth, that is what we should be revealing to our friends and to our neighbors and to those that we interact with in our social media engagement. To be full of grace and full of truth for his glory. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we, we thank you for such a Savior. We thank you that Jesus was willing to leave the glory and the splendor of heaven that he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited for his own advantage, but that he emptied himself, that he came to our world, that he took our flesh, and we thank you that there we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is fully divine and fully man. We thank you that he was able to go to the cross and die there in our place as our substitute. We thank you that he's the only one who can deal with the righteous judgment that is due to each one of us for our failure and rebellion. We thank you that he is the one who is full of grace and truth. And we long and we pray that many would come to know him and enjoy him and love him. Even over this Christmas season, we pray. And we ask it for our good and for his glory. Amen. We're going to sing as we finish this part of the service, Man of Sorrows. And, and one of the reasons we're singing this lovely song that speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ is it speaks the, about the one who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Ruined sinners, that's the truth. To reclaim. There's the grace. We here, we're going to stand and hum. You at home, sing out these truths to the glory of God.